The scripture reading today is taken from Acts chapter 2, verses 38 through 47. Please turn in your Bibles with me. Again, it's Acts chapter 2, verses 38 through 47. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word and were baptized were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Holy Trinity. Pastor John Dennis here and uh, super excited about our text for today. Wasn't that a great story from Nastasha hearing about her conversion and what God did in her life? Just amazing to hear how uh, he broke into her life and flooded her with this sense of his love and his care and his adoption of her and to see how this is leading to a new life. Last Sunday, I had the privilege of going to uh, the Avinks house in Lawndale and there were about 45 or 50 people there all gathered together from two community groups, uh, from one intentional Christian community. And they've been meeting um, outside reading through the scriptures together, singing songs together, and then going inside to participate in listening to our recorded messages. And it's such a picture, what happened last Sunday, and their gatherings in the neighborhoods of what the New Testament church was like, rooted around the word, singing God's praise together, sharing together in uh, their life and in meals and uh, overlapping joy with one another. Uh, the, the sense of God's presence was tangible there last week, and I wish you all could have been there. But you ask the question, where does that come from, say, for Nastasha? Where did that come from for the New Testament church, for the, the, the text that we're, gonna about to, we're about to look at? And part of the answer comes in the text uh, in verse 37, which was not read, but I'm just going to reference in a moment. But it talks about them being cut to the heart. And it really literally means to be stabbed, to be pricked, to have their hearts convicted. And what we're going to see is that the beauty and the hope and the joy of the church comes from this deep sense of conviction and this deep sense of awe and realizing that Christ is who God says he is, that he is now reclining into heaven, having conquered his enemies. So my prayer for this morning is that all of us would be pricked in the heart, that our hearts would be responsive to who Jesus is, that we would be willing to repent, that we would be willing to receive his word and his spirit to live this kind of communal life that we 
see happening in our city, but also that we see happening in the New Testament. Will you bow with me in prayer and we'll get started on our text. Our Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you for this beautiful picture of Nastasha's baptism, but we also thank you for the beautiful picture of the 3,000 that were baptized in the text that we are looking at today. And we ask, Lord, that we need your spirit on all the households scattered across Chicago that are listening right now. We need you to show up. We need our hearts to be pricked with your power, with your conviction. Help us not to be hard-hearted, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you take your Bibles, I'd like you to look with me uh, at the text that we're going to be studying. And I actually do, as I just said, want to start in verses 36 and 37, and we'll read to uh, verse 41. And I'm going to break our text into kind of two sections today. We're actually going to look all the way to verse 47. But I want you to see kind of the roots of where this new life came from that you see in chapter 42 to 47, some of my favorite verses in the Bible. Where did it come from? What was the soil that this new life burst out of? It's almost like perhaps you've watched uh, before one of those time-lapse videos where you see a plant sort of poking out of the ground and literally in sort of 30 seconds it growing and, and starting to kind of uh, burst forth with life. And that's kind of what you see happening in this passage. It's almost like there's a, a time compression where these people have heard this loud noise. They've come and heard Peter's sermon. They're, they're convicted of their sin because they realize who Christ is. And then Boom, this new life springs up. So I want to look at the, the, the soil itself and then kind of the structure. The soil is verses 36 to, to 41. And then the structure or the new life itself is verses 42 to 47. So that's how we're going to uh, order the sermon today under those two headers. So take a look with me at verse 36. This is the conclusion of Peter's pretty long sermon in which he quotes these three Old Testament texts from Joel and then two from the Psalms. And he says, let the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And they have this sudden sense of conviction that comes upon them because they realize that this peasant, this, this migrant a uh, rabbi named Jesus of Nazareth is actually God in the flesh. And not only that, but that God had planned his death and resurrection and then his reclining and ruling in heaven for our sakes, for the forgiveness of sins. Now listen to what it says, verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Literally, the, the imagery there is of being stabbed. It's like they're pricked. It's like something has gone into them. And, and they feel this sense of conviction. And they say, brothers, what shall we do? And so here's the soil that this new life in, in 42 to 47 is going to come out of. It comes out of a heart of conviction. It comes out of a sense of awe of who God is. And Peter then says to them, he tells them to do two things, repent, which, which means to, to do an about face, a spiritual and an, a total about face of your life, not merely to turn away from sin, but to turn towards the person of Christ 
who is now ruling and reclining in heaven and understand that he is the Lord of all and change every aspect of your life based on who he is. He becomes the new sort of ordering and reorienting principle to repent and then to be baptized, which is to take the sign of water upon yourself as a, as a sign that Christ has washed away your sins. And Romans 6 talks about, this is one of the texts that we read with Nastasha last week, talks about being lowered into the water in a sense and then being brought up to new life. The people in this passage are called to be baptized, that is to, to submit themselves and submerge themselves in the teaching and life of Christ and then to be raised. So repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, why the name of Jesus Christ? That goes back to what we saw at the end of Peter's quotation of, uh, of Joel. This is uh, chapter 2, verse 21. It shall come upon, sorry, it shall come upon that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So they were to be baptized in the name of the one who could save, and his name is church. Come on, Jesus. Thank you. For the forgiveness of sin. So there's two actions they take. They reorient themselves. They repent. And then they're baptized. And then there's two gifts that they're given. The forgiveness of sins and the, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to just imagine this for a moment. Imagine if every sin that you've committed, every hard-hearted thought that you've had, every action, every lie, every sexual immorality, Every moment where you hated someone else, every every second that you are ashamed of is forgiven. And as the Psalms say, your sins are moved as far as the east is from the west. When they repent, they have received eternal forgiveness from God. And not only that, they have also received the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter says, look, this isn't just for you. This is for you and your children. And God loves the generations. He loves to see the gospel handed down from one generation to the next. It's why we love Kid City. It's why we celebrate as a church. Not when we had, a, not when one of us has a child, but when someone else has a child, we're celebrating because that child is brought into the household of God. And then he says, uh, Luke tells us, the author says, verse 40, and with many other words, actually, let me, let me go to verse 39, for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Very interesting there because it says in verse 21, all who call upon the Lord will be saved, but then it also says the Lord is calling us. So there's a dual calling that is happening in salvation. And I just want to speak to those of you who have never really repented, who have never really have never been baptized, have really never called upon the Lord. In this moment, the Lord is also calling upon you. And they realize that the Lord is calling on them while they then begin to call on him. And it says, verse 40, verse 40, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Really interesting that he's bearing witness there, because that's what Jesus said in Acts 1, 8. 
They said, hey, Jesus, is this the time when we're going to restore the kingdom to yourself? And he says, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons, but you will be my witnesses. And now here's Peter witnessing for Christ. Peter, the failed disciple, Peter, the one who had denied Christ, Peter, the one who was so ashamed of Jesus that he couldn't look him in the eyes after he denied him. This one, now that he's received the, the, the power of the spirit, he is now witnessing and 3,000 are saved, but he exhorts them. He says, he says that he wants them to be saved, but he also says, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So they were, those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Can you imagine that? Last week, uh, and I was there present for Nastasha's baptism, but you saw some of it this morning. Uh, recorded. Imagine that happening 3,000 times over. What a sense of awe there would be. Love what it says in verse 43, and awe came upon every soul. You see, when they began to repent, it wasn't just this momentary sense of conviction. Awe. They were filled with this transcendent sense of who God is. And brothers and sisters, if we want the fruit of the kind of life that we see in verses 42 to 47, what we need is a deep sense of awe of who God is. You see, that vibrancy of life that we're going to look at in verses 42 to 47 comes from a soil It comes from the soil of repentance. It comes from the soil of conviction. It comes from seeing Christ lifted up, as Psalm 110 says, and as Peter quotes, that that God has made his enemies his footstool. How? By crucifying Christ, by making Christ the footstool himself. So that is the first uh, set of verses, which really has to do with the soil of conviction. So Holy Trinity Church, And skeptics, I call on you to have a soft heart, not to be brutish, not to uh, turn away from this sense of awe of who Christ is. So that's the soil that this new life sprung forth in verses 36 to 41, which is the soil of conviction and forgiveness and repentance and the gift of the spirit and these people being baptized. That was where it came from, this new life. But now I want to show you the beauty and the vibrancy of this new life. There's a book by Rodney Stark, uh, which uh, is called The Rise of Christianity. Asks the question, how did this global worldwide movement that, that includes about 2.7 billion people called Christianity today, how did it move from this marginal movement following this, this rabbi, this peasant who was really in the margins of society to become what it is today. And um, Rodney Stark talks about the rise of Christianity, how Christianity really affected the whole Roman Empire. Listen to what he says. He says, Christianity revitalized life in Greco-Roman cities by providing new norms and new kinds of social relationships that were able to cope with many urgent problems. Urban, sorry, urgent urban problems to cities filled with the homeless and the impoverished. Christianity offered charity as well as hope to cities filled with newcomers and strangers. Christianity offered an immediate an immediate basis for attachments to cities filled with the orphans and the widows. Christianity provided a new and expanded sense 
of family. To cities torn apart by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. To cities faced with epidemics, fires, earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing students. Tertullian, who was a prolific Christian writer and lived from about 155 uh, AD to 240 AD, uh, he was uh, from the Roman, a Roman province called Carthage in, in Africa. He spoke of the community of Christianity, and this is how he described it. He said, we are one in mind and soul. We do not hesitate to share our earthly goods with one another, which you're about to see in this passage. And he says this interesting phrase, all things are in common but our wives. They were characterized by a kind of strict, God-centered morality, but also willingness to share all things. And as I just said a second ago, it came from a sense of who God is. We just sang earlier, holy, 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 though the darkness hide thee, though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see. Only thou art holy, there is none beside thee, perfect in power and love and purity. And what happens in this next pass, pass, section here in verses 42 to 47 is you have this beautiful picture of people in awe with God and willing to share all things with one another. And I'm going to read the passage, verses 42 to 47. And then what I want to show you is just uh, four main commitments or four main expressions of devotion that marked their community that, that springs out of this kind of spirit-prompted sense of Christ-centered repentance, all right? So they devoted themselves. This is like a header for the verse 42 for the rest of the section. They devoted themselves to four things, to the apostles' teaching, and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. We'll walk through those one by one. But then if those are the principles of what they were, were committed to, then the whole life is described. This is like a bouquet here. And awe came upon every soul and many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles, which picks up what Peter quoted in, in the book of Joel, that there would be signs on the earth below, verse 19 of chapter two and wonders in the heaven above. The apostles are doing miracles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. See the, see the joy there. Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Oh, what a picture. May God give us this sense of renewal and revival coming from the conviction of our hearts. So if the source of the renewal is this Christ-focused repentance, then the fruit of the renewal is this spirit-empowered uh, sense of gladness and community. And it has these four characteristics that I just want to show you uh, one by one. And, and the first one, I'll put it this way, that the first fruit of Christ-centered and spirit-infused repentance that we see before that comes from that soil is a devotion to uh, apostolic teaching. That's what it says in the text. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And in fact, what it, what it says in the text is that, um, verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized. And it's really important that we understand what apostolic teaching is. So the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the, and the um the scribes in the New Testament had rejected Jesus's authority. They knew the Bible. 
In contemporary terms, many legalists know what the Bible says. Many cultural Christians have taken uh, snippets of the Bible and they incorporate them, but they don't necessarily know who the person is behind the Bible, who is the person of Jesus. And what the apostolic teaching does is, is it takes the teaching that Jesus taught to his disciples and it shows the person who is behind the text. If you look at Paul's whole sermon that we just looked at, answering the question, why did the spirit come? They're not drunk. It's because it's because it's the revelation of a new messianic age in which the crucified one becomes the resurrected one and the resurrected one becomes the spirit gifting one. And so apostolic teaching is focused on this core idea of what's called the gospel or what is called uh, um, the good news. And and it's as they focus on that teaching that their lives really are changed. Let me put it a different way. Um, churches, think of it in the negative. Churches that, that move away from the apostles' teaching eventually wither and die. You see this historically over the last hundred years or so. As churches begin to move away from this core renewing idea of the death and resurrection of Jesus, his, his death as a kind of seed that produces new life. First Peter, Paul, in a later letter to uh, people throughout the dispersion, says at the end of chapter 1 that the gospel is like a seed that, that produces new life, that we, we all wither like grass and fade. But the gift of the, the gospel plants a seed in us that bears fruit and leads to a life of love. I'm just going to quote that so that I don't uh, completely butcher what Peter actually wrote. So here's Peter, who is the one who had, had uh, denied Christ. And this is what he writes in at the end of chapter 1. In the book of Peter, he says, all flesh is like grass and it's glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. He says, this word is the good news that was preached to you. And then earlier, he says that that seed is an imperishable seed that causes us to be born again. So the reason why they devote themselves to the apostles teaching is because it is a life giving word. It is not merely some yoke to be put upon yourself. Many of you who have been raised in legalistic backgrounds feel like, oh, I got to read the Bible. I got to read the Bible. And what needs to happen instead is to come before the presence of the Lord with this sense of conviction, this sense of his holiness, holy, holy is the Lord, and to receive his word. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So I know for skeptical people, your question is, is the word really true? It's too complicated. It's too outdated. And I would ask you to, to read it as the Old Testament predicting who Christ would be and the New Testament confirming who he is so that you might come into a living relationship with him. So the first fruit of Christ-centered, spirit-infused repentance is a dedication to apostolic teaching. The second characteristic, it says in verse 42, is they devoted themselves to fellowship. The word there, um, I think, is a little bit outdated in our culture today. If you're raised in a... 
Pentecostal church or a Baptist church or maybe even a Presbyterian church, they had used to have these fellowship halls or these narthexes, these places where as a little kid, I remember very distinctly the best Sundays were when they had donut holes in the back and some orange juice. That was in the so fellowship hall. So that, that's what our kind of common understanding of fellowship is. And, and in some ways it's true. The word is koinonia. But what it means is a kind of deep, a deeply seated sense of oneness of mind, oneness of heart, being bound together through the peaks of life and through the valleys of life. But the idea of koinonia in the New Testament has this idea of both intensity, local intensity, but also extensity, the idea that we're connected to other people. So you see that, especially in the book of Philippians, where Paul speaks of him being in jail, but he says he's connected to them. He, he speaks about seven times of the idea of them having fellowship together. And even part of their fellowship in chapter three, he says, is the fellowship with Christ's sufferings. So the idea of New Testament koinonia is much deeper, much more rigorous, much bolder than what we think of. And it's really important here, I think, to, to remember the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who really rebukes us for holding up our idealized form of what community should look like and then not engaging in the community that is around us. Now, the description that we have in the book of Acts is so powerful. Listen to it. Awe came upon every soul. Those who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belonging. This is what it looks like to have life in common, distributing proceeds, proceeds to all as anyone had need. Now, what can happen if we can say, oh, we can never achieve that. Or we can remember some time in our past where we did have deep community and then compare our current community to some idealized form and never actually give thanks for the community that is around us. And this is what Bonhoeffer warns against in Life Together. He says, under a section on community, he says, if we do not give thanks daily for Christian fellowship in which we have placed, even where there is no great experience, no discoverable, discoverable riches, but much weakness, small faith and difficulty, He's saying we should give thanks because it actually liberates our souls to give thanks for what we have. And then he says, if on the contrary, we only keep complaining to God that everything is so paltry and petty and so far from what we expected. Then we listen to this as a warning. Then we hinder God from letting our fellowship grow according to the measure and riches which are there for all of us in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, in what ways do you and I hinder God's fullness of the expression of community by our complaining about the community that we are in rather than investing in it? It is like a family. It's like somebody who's complaining constantly about the family that they are in rather than also investing in that family and saying, what can we celebrate? So this second criteria, the second um Characteristic, I should say, that comes from this spirit-filled repentance is this dedication to oneness. Really, koinonia at the heart of it has to do with the, having things in common and this kind of oneness. And may God, Holy Trinity, give us this devotion to his word and this devotion also to this kind of radical Community. It's what we saw last Sunday with 40, 50 people celebrating this baptism. Now, two quick things by way of application. One is you have to believe that Christ has 
made this community a supernatural community, and then two, you have to live it out and practice it. So Bonhoeffer talks about the need for being thankful for it and articulating thanks for it. But he also says this, he says, Christian brotherhood is not an ideal which we must realize. So you don't create Christian community. It's rather a reality, this is powerful, created by God in Christ Jesus, in which we may participate when the spirit came upon them and they realized that it was for men and women and Jew and Gentile and old and young and slave and free. When it was for all people, they realized this was so powerful, but then they gave themselves to living in light of that. And that's what we need here. God has created you skeptics for community. Embrace the triune God. Let it prick your heart and then come to embrace this kind of community. The second fruit of Christ-centered, spirit-infused repentance is this dedication to a rich fellowship together that gives thanks. So the third characteristic after apostolic teaching and this overarching idea of fellowship and community is the breaking of bread. It says that they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Now, what scholars argue a little bit about whether this really does uh, signify the Lord's Supper. Here's what F.F. Uh, F. Bruce says. He says the breaking of bread probably denotes more than the regular breaking of the taking of food together. <clears throat> of course, it doesn't exclude that. It would have come out of their natural meals. But then that moment in the Passover when Jesus changed it and said, this is my body, which is given for you. And he breaks the bread before them. That is probably what is referred to here as the breaking of bread. You can think of uh, taking, uh, say, a uh, a piece of bread and then breaking it into two parts. There's actually imagery there that some scholars believe relates to Jesus's giving of his body for us. So in the same way that his being broken heals us in our brokenness. So here the breaking of bread symbolizes not just a meal that we're having with one another, but a meal with Jesus that points back to the Passover and points forward to the meal that we are going to have in heaven. I'm reading a little bit recently by Willie Jennings talking about the Christian imagination. And there's a beautiful description of his family at the beginning where he talks about his mother and father and how richly devout they were, so devout that he almost couldn't tell where the characters around them, the people that were around them, merged for him with biblical characters because his parents were so dedicated to the teachings of Christ and to the, to the life that was shown in Israel. And what's happening here is this meal that we participate in goes all the way back to the Passover, goes back to 2000 years ago when Jesus had a meal with the disciples. And that meal is kind of expanding to include people from all over the world. Isn't that beautiful? And it, what it, the text says is that they were breaking bread together in the temple and in their homes as well. And so people were spread out all over Jerusalem for this. It's an, it's an element of community, of koinonia. And I would just encourage you um, to make this a part of your life where you are sharing meals with other people, meals of uh, commonality, meals of, think of what it's like to have a meal with someone you can't leave the meal without really knowing them 
better. And so this is part of the rhythm, part of the, you can almost think of these four characteristics as kind of the DNA of this heart pricked faith. This, the DNA of a Christ exalting community is one that says, look, we're going to look at God's word. We're going to be together in community. We're going to share meals together in one another's home. And you might say, look, I've been hurt by community. And I, many of us have been hurt by community. But Christ was hurt as well. He, his body was broken for you. So I ask you to make that investment, to put it in your budget, to take other people out for, for meals, what I sometimes call urban hospitality, to uh, share with other people, to make your condo or your apartment a little place of justice and righteousness in our city today. So third characteristic is the breaking of bread. And then finally is prayers. And we really see this in their joy and gladness. Um, there's a place where um, Oliver, O'Donov Oliver O'Donovan in his book on political theology, where he talks about recovering the roots of theology, references this idea that Yahweh is enthroned in the prayers and praises of his people. He says, so Yahweh's rule, that is God, receives its answering recognition in the praises of his people. And then he quotes Psalm 22, which says he's enthroned in their prayers. And that's what's happening in this passage. They've recognized the name of Jesus. And now Jesus is kind of being enthroned in their midst. Listen to what it says. They receive their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all of the people. Awe had come upon them. The prayers here that are referenced probably were formal prayers, but they were also just the spontaneous prayers of the people. Now, in this weird Zoom culture that we live in today, we just on Thursday, I was with my community group and it was a little eerie. You know, there's about 11 of us on the call, nine different screens and put us in those little breakout rooms, but there is something about bearing one another's burdens. And again, I would say in this moment, don't critique the frailty of the community that is there. Instead, in prayer, look for ways, turn outwards towards the other people in the community and look for ways that they can, you can bear other people's community. Instead of saying, look, the community only measures up to here for me. Say, how can I draw this community up by giving myself to others in prayers? That's the fourth fruit of Christ-centered and spirit-infused repentance. When the heart is pricked, it shows forth in prayer as well. So this becomes a kind of bouquet in this passage of beauty. The, the, the opening header, verse 42, kind of gives a thesis from Luke that this is the DNA of what community looks like. The danger for us is that we work so hard <laughs> on the external manifestation of the fruit that we don't work hard enough on our hearts because where this community came from was really this sense of awe of who Christ is, this sense of our hearts being pricked by conviction that we participate in sin and that we also have rejected God and yet he has come after us with his good news that when he was hanging on the cross that he was hanging there for us this is what he says Peter says in his sermon by a definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed 
by the hands of lawless men, but God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And now he sits ruling in heaven and he's, he's shared his Holy Spirit with you as well. There's an interesting place where um, Abraham Lincoln speaks a little bit about uh, the timing of the Emancipation Proclamation. And he uses this analogy uh, of, of a fruit tree. And he says that you basically says you cannot force fruit to come from a tree. And he says this because he felt like if he had uh, made the Emancipation Proclamation earlier, even by a few months, he felt like it, it was possible that it could have been rejected. And he uses a, an analogy here of a pear tree. He says, a man watches his pear tree day after day, impatient for the ripening of the fruit. Let him attempt to force the process and he may force Sorry, he may spoil both the fruit and the tree, but let him patiently wait and the ripe pear at length falls into his lap. And I love that. And I'll just close with that is that there is a sense of us needing to wait upon the Lord. We need this fruit in our community. We don't you long for this sense of awe. Don't you long for God to do a hundred times, three thousand times what he did for Nastasha for three thousand to be baptized. But we wait for him. And we cultivate the soil of our hearts in awe before him. Holy Trinity, let me say it this way. The church is the hope of the world because we have the only message of forgiveness, the only message of the gospel. And so I just want to challenge you to dedicate yourself, to devote yourself to these things, to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread. What do you want to mark your life? When you come to the end of your life, will people say of you, yes, that person was marked by a sense of awe and gladness. They loved the word of God. They loved prayers. They loved being with God's people. They loved fellowshipping with other people, breaking bread in their homes. What will be said of you? And what will be said of this community? The church is the hope of God for the world because we were created by Jesus Christ. May we live with awe and joy and humility of hearts. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, for this word, for the beauty of the church that is described here. And we pray that our hearts would be sensitive to the, the stabbing of the spirit and that we would give ourselves to these very basic commitments of, a, of the DNA of the, the church. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.